Good morning. Um, actually, I think I, I kind of know almost everybody here, but in the last service I had to reintroduce myself because uh, I know many of you are worried that rapture happened because I wasn't here, uh, and you wouldn't have been all know because I was in a mask. And it wouldn't have been like the weirdest thing if the rapture would have happened during COVID, and like for a year no one knew. Um, but <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm here, so we're good. No, okay. Sorry. I tried the joke in the first service, and it didn't go over, so... I think a lot of them are like, what's rapture? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That, these are the mature believers. <laughs> All right. So here we are, the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to go to chapter 4, but I'm going to do a little bit of review. So normally what will happen, my name is Chris. I do not work at Eastridge. I actually work for the Navigators, and I lead our U.S. work to the first responder world. I work with police officers and firefighters, and my job is to help bring the Gospel into those contexts and then help them... Uh, help police officers and firefighters take the Word of God and bring it to their fellow first responders, and that's what I do. It's called discipleship, and that's what I normally do. But occasionally, Dwayne will, when he's feeling really risky, he'll unleash, unleash me to the congregation, is what I call it. He lets me out of my cage, and I'm now let out. So I'm here. Uh, Dwayne is not here, so we're going to really have fun, because he was here in the first service, so I was all tame. But now, I'm just, you know, like, it's party time. Okay, all right. So John chapter 4 is where we're actually at. We're going to be talking about the Samaritan woman at the well, okay? But before we get there, I want to review. So normally what will happen is I would go back and listen to everyone's, uh, normally like or Ben or Dwayne or whoever is preaching before me, I'll go listen to three or four sermons. It turned out this week it was ridiculous. I've been on the road for two, two and a half weeks. I got back last night just to preach. So needless to say, I didn't have time to go back and review everything. So... What I'm going to do um, is I'm going to recap chapters 1 through 4 as if I were preaching, all right? Not to say it was wrong, they're just going to give you a different context, but it helps you because you need to know what was happening chapter 1, 2, and 3 as we get into 4 because you're going to see these themes repeated. So I'm going to show you that. Now, <clears throat> many of you know me, like I see Kevin and Nancy and the, and the kiddos there. Yes, you still look like a kid, yeah. yeah. This is like the old discipleship days, like... Your row should be right there. Okay, anyway, and all we need is Ron sitting right here, Ron Johansson sleeping, yep, and it's perfect. Okay, he's not here, he was in the first service, so I can make fun of him. Now, here's what we're going to do, we're going to go back, and I'm going to show you something real quick, uh, that, that if I were doing John, this is how I do it, actually I'm doing a study with a group of first responders around the country on Zoom on Saturday mornings, and this is what we're doing, so I'm going to show you. In John chapter 1, you're introduced to the concept of the Word, you just saw the little montage there. The Word was with God, the Word was God. This crazy uh, deal about who Jesus is, he's, he's the Word, he's, He was with God, He was God, He's the same thing. And what you learn from this is that God is both eternal and personal, okay? And we don't have time to get into all the reasons why God is eternal and personal, but He's eternal and personal, uh, and and that mean, and the, real quick, the reason he's personal, this is just a quick thing, is because you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit living in eternity. You have three persons and one uh, God. They're able to relate to one another. Okay? If you've ever thought about this a little bit, if you didn't have three eternal persons, how could someone know how to love, communicate, cherish, think? Uh, you could think, but communicate. You couldn't do that. You can't be personal without someone to be personal with. And so the Trinity, the Word who was with God and was God, was able to do these things. So this is John chapter 1. You learn that God is eternal and He's personal. You also learn in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 as we go that He's 
loving and holy, okay? Now, we get loving, most of us, and we live in Portland, all right? I mean, can't we all just love one another? You know, you've seen the bumper stickers. But what you're going to also find out is God is holy, too. And that's the part, oftentimes, we like to like, eh, I'm going to downplay that one, but you can't. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So here's what I want you to know, but here's John chapter 1 in a nutshell. What John chapter 1 does, essentially, is he comes in and he introduces to us, and this is uh, what I call the spheres. Some of you, if you've ever uh, been in any of my classes, will see these. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little wowing here, because I love spheres. Uh, people ask me how I ever came to this illustration, and most people don't know this, but before I was in ministry and before I was a cop and all that, I was actually a technical theater guy. I was a lighting designer for like stage plays and dances, okay? Yeah, that's right, dance recitals, ballet and stuff. That's what I did. I loved it. That's actually how I got into law enforcement, because I thought the lights on cop cars were so cool, okay? <laughs> Weirdest thing ever, and they let me be a cop. It was weird. Okay, all right, so here's what we got. Sphere number one is the green sphere, and the green sphere represents how we live, act, think, play today in our American culture. Everybody you relate with, even in your own family, this is how you mostly think, okay? And how do I know this? How many of you have a smartphone? Raise your hand. Smartphone? If you're not ready, come on. All right, let's, you're the holy of the holies. I mean, you're in the second service. That means you wait for the riffraff to leave. You're now second service. You're second service holy people. Let's raise our hands and be honest. Okay, how many of you have a smartphone? Yeah, I understand the kids don't. Yep, I wouldn't let my kids either. Okay, now, how many of you on your smartphone have at least one shopping app? Maybe Amazon, but one. Maybe you're anti-Amazon, but you still, you put Walmart on there because you got... Okay, how many of you have ever used the app? Right? Yeah, uh-huh, okay. How many of you have ever been to a store to window shop? Window shop, just look around, huh? Yes, yes, you, as one person put it one time, yes, you are all professional coveters, yes. Okay, so you all live, think, and act in the, in the green sphere. This is our natural default fallen way of thinking, all right? So here's what happens in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, Jesus comes in the blue sphere, and he says that, guess what? In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the blue sphere, and then out of this blue sphere, he created the green sphere. And so immediately, you're, you're, you're thrust into a context where the green sphere is not the ultimate reality, the way people want to think, but that the blue sphere, where God was, that the blue sphere helped produce the green sphere, it was created from the people living in, the persons living in the blue sphere. All right, that's what you're told in John chapter 1. And the rest of the book of John, uh, what's happening, the author John is using Jesus, showing how Jesus was trying to show us that the blue sphere is there. It's real, and it's invading the green sphere. In fact, we know today something they didn't know, and that is that the green sphere is created. Scientists know this is created, whether it's Big Bang or whatever they want to say. They know that this didn't always exist. So what existed before it? You see what I'm saying? And this is what John chapter 1 is coming to do. Out of this sphere, all things were created. Out of the persons of the Trinity, out of the Word who was with God and was God, this came into being. And what else you also realize is that there's another sphere, and we all know this one. We know this one better than any sphere. And this is what I call the red sphere, and, it's the red, and, and this is the person sphere. This is you. This is your consciousness. This is where your love is, your passion, your thoughts, your ideas, your creativity. 
In fact, what I would argue is this is the thing that connects the green sphere to the blue sphere. This is why when you pray and you listen to God, you hear Him inside you. We're designed to hear God because this is us. So we already know just because of this, this can't be the only reality because humans are there. We all know that. Now, there's some people trying to tell us that the red sphere is really just the green sphere. You know, our mind is just the brain. But that's the biggest lie. Philosophically, they've proven this wrong. There's so many ways. Uh, even uh, quantum physics has proven this wrong. I don't even have time to show you all this. But we know this is a separate sphere. We do. And this is what has in here. And, and so what's interesting is, is in John chapter, in the book of John paints this picture of what ultimate reality looks like. And this is what ultimate reality is. Out of the realm of the spiritual, it actually says that, spiritual realm, out of the spiritual realm, all of this stuff came to exist. And it's just modeling this realm, by the way. The person of Jesus is modeling and creating this realm. And so this is the ultimate reality, all three spheres. But we like to, and many in our world, like to think this is the only reality. This is what I call the physical only reality, P-O-R, or the poor reality. Physical only and all of us know people that are physical-only type thinkers, right? And so we're going to look at that today in John chapter 1. So we can bring the house lights back up, and we're going to jump into the text, or I'm going to just walk you through. So John chapter 1, you have the Word and light, okay? Word and light describe Jesus. So the light shines in darkness. If you've ever been in a dark place, and you're walking around, and you stumble or whatever, you can't see. So when you turn the light on, right, you can see. I mean, how many of you have ever pulled out your cell phone and turned on the flashlight? Do you do that just for fun, or do you do that to see something? So Jesus is described as the Word and the light. Then he's given seven additional names, uh, starting John the Baptist is introduced into the story of John in chapter 1, and seven additional names are given to him, all key. I don't want to focus on two, okay, just for the purposes of John chapter 4, where we're going to be today. One of the names given to Jesus is Messiah, Messiah. And so <clears throat> Messiah is this Old Testament character built up throughout the whole Old Testament of this person that's going to come and rescue, at least in their mindset, the Jewish people, but we know through Isaiah, he's going to rescue all people. All people are going to be rescued through the Messiah. So that's one concept. The second name I want you to, and there's other names he's given, but the second name that's important for our story today is Son of Man. Son of Man, okay? And Son of Man is an interesting title. Um, I one time asked a group of people in a Bible study, would you rather be the Son of God or the Son of Man? Everybody wants to be the Son of God. But actually, Son of God in the New Testament is actually the lower title. Son of Man is the high title. And I'm going to tell you why in a little bit. But Son of Man comes out of Daniel chapter 7. And Son of Man is one of them I want us to focus on. So chapter 1, you're introduced to the Messiah as the Word, the Light, the Son of Man, the Messiah. Chapter 2 comes in, and he does his first miracle. He changes uh, uh, water into wine. So this is the passage that gives the Baptists a lot of shuffle, you know, like, whoa. I mean, like, so this is hard to do, but water to wine. And there's a whole bunch to that. I don't want to get into it. There was already a message on it. But this is the first miracle he performs where his disciples start saying, whoa, wait a minute. We live here, and he just did something that seems outside of this realm. He did something that doesn't exist just here. He starts to show, Jesus starts to show that he's from here. And when this is here, anything's possible. Okay? So it's, it's kind of amazing. <clears throat> so he does water to wine, and then he does something else. He walks into the temple. So he's in Judea. Uh, Judea. He's in Jerusalem. 
He walks into the temple, and what had happened is, imagine you have, let's just for a minute pretend like Eastridge is a temple, and we're the temple, right? And, uh, and what was happening is Clackamas Mall basically was set up here too. So and you go to worship the Lord, and you got to pass, you know, the various stores like the Gap, and you know that one where, I, well, I don't know the name of that store where, you know, they used to have the models standing out in front of it. I thought that is a little crazy, but anyway, that's what was basically happening. The temple was becoming a big mall. Because everybody would gather to worship, hey, might as well make a little dough at this, okay? And he enters the temple, and what does he do? The holiness of Jesus kicks in. <laughs> and he goes, this is not the purpose here. Boom, and he starts throwing things out. It actually says he makes a whip, and I think that is so cool. We don't like to picture Jesus with a whip, but he did. He had a whip, and he did some stuff with the whip. So that's in chapter 2. And, but he makes a little statement in chapter 2 toward the end. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So here's what he's about to do. Everybody thinks of the temple in this worldview. It's a physical building. And he's about to shift their mindset to this is where the temple is. Okay, it's really an amazing thing. This is where it belongs, and he's about to do that. And we're going to see it again in our passage today in, Acts chapter, or in John chapter 4. So he clears the temple, and then you have Nicodemus in chapter 3. And Nicodemus is the first story type, the Samaritan in the well, the one we're going to read about again, is him doing the same story to a different person. Okay, and here's the example I gave. I gave this in the first service, okay? Now, Dwayne is our religious leader. He's our pastor. When he gets up here and preaches, we all bow down. I'm just kidding, we don't do that. We, but like, we're like, hey, there's the smart one. When I hang with Dwayne, I'm a little intimidated, okay? He's the man. So Dwayne is Nicodemus. He's the religious leader. And Jesus confronts Nicodemus. But Jesus cares so much, he doesn't just confront the religious leader. We're about to, he also will confront the homeless person on the street that we all despise. And he will give the truth to that person too, and that's the Samaritan at the well. We're about to get it, Okay. So that's there, so we're in chapter 3, and then there's a powerful little passage I just want to show us in chapter 3 that's so important before we get into our text here. This is going to become important, um, and here it is. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, okay? Now, quick pause. Remember, this is John 3.19. What verses, a few verses right before this that we all know because we attend baseball games? John 3.16. And we all love John 3.16 because this is where he brings the love. This is the love of Jesus. For God so loved the world that if you believe in him, in his only begotten son, that you too shall have eternal life. That's basically the passage, right? Everybody agree that that's the passage? Yes, I mean, we all know that one in whatever version you learned it in. So, <clears throat> so what's interesting is that just a few verses later, this is what he says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Implication of this passage, when your deeds are evil, you don't want to hide them. Okay? We do. Even those of us attending church, we tend to hide our deeds. We don't just come to church and say, you want to know what I did this week? Oh my gosh. I was lusting and coveting and swearing and hating and gossiping. Oh, I was gossiping like crazy. We don't do that. We hide them like, yes, I'm very holy. Thank you. All right? We hide it. Because we don't want to expose it in the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear, that's the reason you don't tell people, fear that their deeds will be exposed. 
in your mind, in the, in the uh, mental sphere only. Do not do this in the physical sphere. Raise your mental sphere hand if you've ever hidden something from somebody because you were afraid the deed would get exposed. Yes, in my mental sphere, I can see all your hands raised. Good. Okay. All right. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for their fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is chapter 3, the closing of chapter 3. And now we're in chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 4. With that background, we go to chapter 4, and it starts like this. <clears throat> Verse 1, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who, was baptized, who, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, kind of the center of the world. Okay, he left Judea, the, 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 the prime real estate, the location where you know, God is, right? That's kind of what they're thinking is. And he has to, he's going to go back to, um, he leaves and, and he's going to head back up to Galilee. So in order to get from Judah to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is this in their world, okay? Um, and I, I don't know if anybody lives downtown, but right now, we all kind of avoid downtown a little bit. Okay, I don't know about you. I've been. I was down there a few weeks ago, and it it's a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit shady down there. Like that's you know. I mean, how many of you are looking for a house to buy in downtown Portland right now? How many of you are like pulling up Zillow, you know, right next to your Amazon app, and you're like looking? Yeah, man, I'm gonna buy a little condo downtown. No, no one is. In fact, I just had a friend who has a condo downtown. He's like, dude, I can't sell my place. No one wants to move down here. I wonder why. Because it's Samaria. All right, so he's got to travel through Samaria. So he's got to leave Happy Valley, you know, the center of our world. And he's got to travel through downtown to get to Beaverton, you know, the other side. Okay, so that's what's happening. And when he's there, it tells us that the physical journey, he's tired. So in this realm, he's tired. And he sits down by a well, and his disciples leave. So it's just Jesus, because this story would be a lot different if the disciples were there, because the disciples would be like, go away, woman, go away. But this has got to happen. And Jesus is about to meet the Samaritan woman, okay? And so, um, whoops, did my page, there it is, okay, good. All right, so this is what happens in chapter 4, uh, and he's at the well, and then in verse 7 it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, she is struck by this, like, whoa, uh, and uh, the Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? For, and it tells you in your scripture, it says, because the Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. So she is really like, what just happened? And the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Like, do you know who I am? Like, you shouldn't be talking to me. No one else does. Like, I'm the outcast. I'm the outsider. I'm not here. You're, you're a Jew, okay? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift God who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, here's the problem. She's looking at this, and he answers her consistently from here. Watch what happens, okay? So he's about to say, so first thing, she's, she's all concerned. All he's asking, by the way, if any, anybody I asked for a drink and I had to go through this type of dialogue, I would not ask for a drink, okay? Just saying. But 
watch what she does. This is the craziest dialogue ever. And uh, so here's the dialogue. So first thing she's like, uh, I'm like the lowly little Samaritan woman and you're talking to me. And you have to know at this point, she's probably never talked to a Jew or a Jewish man in a way that where they were asking for help. So this is just blowing her mind. And so here she is. So Jesus answered, and so Jesus gives her the answer, if you knew who I was, like if basically, if you know who I was, you, this, this is, you're not even asking the right question. You're not even saying the right things, okay? And then it says like this, the woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw from uh, in the well, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So what she's basically saying is like, uh, hello, hello, you have no tools to give me living water. You get it? And he's like, yeah, I do. You get it? No tools. Where's this living water? Yeah, I can give you the living water. This is what's happening. Jesus, all the way through the book of John, John is tearing this out in, in miracle after miracle to show that the spiritual reality is really real, that Jesus came from there and it has come to invade the physical reality. That's what's happening. So Jesus answers her, everyone who drinks this water from the physical reality will be thirsty again, okay? Quick question. How many of you have ever had this experience? Again, just raise it in your mental mind. Uh, you order something from Amazon, it comes. And it, that was all exciting. You get it. Two hours later, like, yeah. I'm thirsty again. Got to order me some more Amazon. Now, if you've ever had that, raise your hand in your mind. Yep, good. Yep, oh, you're a liar. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay, good. All right. So that's what happens. We do. When you do things in the physical world, what happens is you begin to be thirsty again. If you consume a product thinking that will make you happy, you'll do that. But when you follow Jesus, we're promised this eternal joy this joy that will never end. It's when we see the spiritual realm and see where Jesus came from and see this. You can be physically tired. I'm physically tired. I have literally been in meetings since, uh, since Saturday morning. Then I had to get on a plane and I think it was like eight hours to get here and then get up this morning and get ready to preach a sermon. I am physically tired, but I desire, I have this desire, this spiritual desire and this eternal power working in me that provides in my weaknesses. And Jesus is physically tired. It said that in the passage. But then he's like, hey, I've got something that will wet your whistle for the rest of eternity. And this is the dialogue that's going on with the Samaritan. And keep in mind, he just had this same kind of conversation with the, the religious leader. And he's doing this message there, and he's just saying, hey, look, I've got the living water. So Jesus... Um, so the woman, rightfully right, so now for the first time, she's like, okay, wait a minute. You got the living water. That sounds good. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I mean, that's legit, right? She's like, okay, I don't, this is hard. Like, I got I to gotta haul these pails down. I mean, you guys all turn on a faucet to get water. Getting water back then, that's hard work. I, had a, I worked, a, we had a farm uh, when we were growing up, and my uncle who owned the farm, he's actually my great uncle, was too cheap to pay for water and uh, electricity. So I know what it's like. I had to pump. And when you're a little kid, I, I, you can't pump fast enough to get the water up. Now they, they had to like 
put the rope down, go all the way down, grab the water. They had to walk to it and get it. I mean, you guys just don't even realize how spoiled you are. Okay, I mean, it's crazy. So in her mind, she's like, okay, I don't want to be thirsty anymore because this is, this is retarded right here. This is retarded. Now, i got to do it so I can live, but I want this. So this is what he does. Watch Jesus' response. This is the weirdest response, but you're going to get it in just a minute. He says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Huh? I'm talking about water. What? Go get your husband? Is this one of those like weird passages where Jesus can't talk to her anymore because she's a woman, so he's got to have the husband? No. He's been talking to her the whole time. In fact, he's going to make a point. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with, you now have, is not your husband. What you said is quite true. That's how she responds. Here's what Jesus does. You want the living water? You want the living water? I'm going to go mess with your stuff now. And he gets right in there, and he deals with your stuff. You know what's really interesting? People want to follow Jesus because they love to love Jesus. Oh, man, I am all about grace and mercy and forgiveness. and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the only way Jesus can actually really get to know you and you really get to know him is when he messes with their stuff. When he calls you out, what did he do? He brought her stuff into the light. And he does it. He's so merciful because he let his disciples leave. I mean, this is all intentional. So it's just, it's just the Messiah and her. And he says, you want the living water? I got to mess with your stuff. I got to go deep. Because when I mess with your stuff, when I start taking care of this stuff, and you can start seeing reality for what it really is, you won't be thirsty anymore. You won't be getting on Amazon, clicking away, to fill the internal thing because your stuff's all messed up. Do you start to get it? Are you getting it? This is what he's doing. So in order for Jesus to fulfill or to give her that water that never, where you're never thirsty again, he's got to mess with your stuff. So she replies, she says, I mean, she's just got the bright light pointing right at her, and she's got to be ashamed. I mean, already, like, can you imagine? But she's with the Messiah, and she's just like, oh my gosh, you know my stuff. You must be a prophet. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that it's a place where the, wor- we, the place where we worship, must, we must worship in Jerusalem. Woman, she, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And they will worship the spiritual realm in spirit and in truth. It's not going to take place here. It's not going to take place in a physical place. You will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father see. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Guess what? He said the same thing to Nicodemus. You know how he called Nicodemus out, by the way? He put Nicodemus in the light. Didn't you know this already? You're a religious leader. Come on, Dwayne. Get it figured out. Whoops, did I say that? Nicodemus? I meant Nicodemus. Dwayne's not here. Shh, don't tell him. 
Get it? It doesn't matter who he's going to approach. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. He's going to get in there. He's got to mess with your stuff. So that you can have the water where you will never thirst again. This is the holiness of God. The woman, I think at this point, she's like, you know what? This is what she says. The woman said, I know that Messiah, remember? Messiah, the one that was in the Old Testament. We know he's coming, called Christ. So Messiah is the Hebrew translation. Christ is the Greek translation. So they both mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. The woman said, I know Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. (laughs) Then Jesus declared, I'm the one. Speaking to you, I am he. It's really interesting, by the way, because other people were asking Messiah questions all the way through. The disciples were starting to figure it out, but he declares it to her. There's so, much th- there's so much we could talk about. I mean, it would be, it's like, this is what Jesus did. Okay, now I'm a, I'm a cop, uh, or I, I'm not a cop anymore, okay, don't worry. I, I wouldn't even know how to be a cop anymore, but I used to be. But it'd be like, God has to reach Chris, and he's going to do it by reaching someone in Antifa, and letting Antifa grow the gospel, and then someone in Antifa leads me to Christ. I mean, this is the paradigm that's set up here. So he reveals he's the Messiah. He's the one directly to the Samaritan. I mean, there is so much you could talk about about this. I mean, by the way, he uses women dynamically more than he uses the men. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Who's the ones who discover he's risen? And, they, and the implication is they believe they were ready. It took the guys a long time to get along and figure this out. I mean, there's so much you could say here. I'm not going to say any of this. I've got... Five applications I want to pull out of this passage real quick, okay? Number one, we love people because we see their humanity and that they are fallen like us, that God has got to deal with everyone the same. He's got to deal with everybody's stuff, and everybody has stuff that has to be dealt with in order to be aligned with the spiritual reality that Jesus came to bring, okay? That's the bottom line. And so we can't pass judgment on anyone, no one. No one can you pass judgment on. Everybody's just like you. And Christ did the same thing for Nicodemus, the religious leader, and the Samaritan at the well who he shouldn't have even been talking to. He does the same thing for everyone. In fact, by the way, Peter wrestles with this even more when he's called to go reach the Gentiles later. I mean, not the Samaritan. I mean, what? You mean you want me to go deal with them? It's the perfect Jonah picture. We don't have time to get into that. Again, they only give me a limited amount of time up here um, for your sake. Okay, number two, we, we strive for holiness. This is a key. Okay, we strive for holiness now, but your motive is right. We strive for holiness not because we're ordered to, but because of our desire to be like Christ. Holiness is our reality. We are the temple But it must come because we have a desire and a belief in ultimate reality, not because we're just trying to do it. All right? It's not a legalistic holiness. And this is is so hard for people to get. All right? If you do it, because even if you act like you're a Christian, you say, I believe in Jesus. I show up to church. 
but you don't actually believe, like in your heart of hearts, deep down, what's happening is you're putting a mask on. This is what the Pharisees are doing in his day. They're like, yes, we are the holy ones, yes. We do this and this and this. And they have all these behaviors they do, but the inside of them is disgusting. So disgusting that the temple represents them great. Their temple is full of marketplace ideas, and, and it's a big scam. And Jesus is like, I'm going to show you physically what i got to do. i got to clear all this garbage out. <laughs> Amazon gone. Boom. Now the temple's getting ready. So when you begin to realize you're the temple of God, because you find this out in Acts chapter 7. This is why Stephen gets stoned, by the way. Oh my gosh, it's such an amazing thing. But when you realize, when you, someday, when you wake up and you realize the temple of God is here, in me, right here, this is the connecting point. It's not East Ridge Church, it's not any church, it's not any building. I've been to Jerusalem, it's really cool. Kevin and all of us went there last year, or two years ago, whenever it was. It's really cool, but that is not where the temple is. And when you realize that the temple is you, when you really believe that, it should create a desire change in you. It should. You should, like, I want to be holy. So holiness doesn't come from following a set of rules. This was the hard thing the Pharisees had. Holiness comes because your belief about what is really real influences everything about you. Not perfectly, that's where grace comes in, but it is still your desire. It's not because of a discipline, it's because of a desire. Number three, there is no one irredeemable in this paradigm. This is so important to get because we, we kind of do. I actually, when things were like breaking down and I was in Seattle and I was in Portland mess, hanging with our guys and dealing with our New York City staff who were dealing with all these protests and stuff, at the time it was really hard and the Lord at one point convicted me. He's like, are you praying for the Antifa people? Uh, no, God, I'm not. I really am not. Don't want to. Uh, I redeemed you, son. Oh my gosh. There is no one irredeemable. One of my kind of spiritual heroes nowadays is a man who was a dictator. He led a coup, killed literally thousands and thousands of people in Panama, and was one of the biggest drug leaders uh, in the uh, 80s, named Manuel Noriega. And Manuel Noriega, right now, I think he's in prison in Panama, he was here, is now a follower of Jesus who spends his life helping people follow Jesus. No one is irredeemable. One of the problems we have in church with the church folk, okay, those of us who go to church on Sunday because we're cool, I know you've done this, I know when you're driving to church and you see the little walker and you realize, hey, they're not going to church, you're like, I'm better than you are. You do that, come on. Raise your, raise your mental hand. Yep, everybody's got it up. Good, okay. We all do that. We have these little judgments we make. But when you live in real reality, you go, nah. In fact, I sometimes will meet people that are, I mean, I used to, you know, have to take people to prison. I'm like, you did what? Oh my gosh. And sometimes it hits me. That dude could come to Christ and lead more people to Christ than I will ever influence. I mean, you just start thinking about this stuff and you're like, Wow. Wow, this is pretty cool. No one is irredeemable. The woman at the well, Nicodemus, Jesus came to play with everyone. Look who he picked to be his disciples. Some young fisherman, a tax collector, an IRS agent, you know, a bunch of like snotty little teenagers, uh, you know, a couple of them we think were probably in their, you know, as young as maybe even 14. That's what he picked. He didn't pick religious leaders. In fact, the one religious leader he picks, he has to do a miracle on that dude to get him to go. 
he literally brings the spiritual realm right on top of him on the road to Damascus. And then that guy writes 66% of the New Testament. But he's not allowed to be, he's not in the, the first 12. I mean, you could do this all day. Jesus came to show. In fact, it's funny, in the text, several times it says, what good can come from Nazareth? He came from Nazareth. And that's kind of the outskirts. That's like coming from like Estacada. I mean, so, I mean, like, what good comes from Estacada? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I have lots of good friends. All the Clackamas County deputies live in Estacada. So, good, good people, most of them. Anyway, but that's what, that's what it was like. But God continuously does that all the way through the Scripture to show you, you don't know what you're talking about. He loves to invade our space and, and deal with the stuff inside. No one is irredeemable. And here's the next one. This one's hard. This is the one we need to get. Love is, by definition, exclusive. With Nicodemus and the woman at the well, he gives them something they got to chew on, and they have to have a response. Now, we don't like to think that. The world wants us to believe, just love everybody. That's kind of the mantra that's given. And you are actually supposed to love everybody. But you don't, when they say love everybody, that means accept their actions too. That's not the point of love. Love is about actually loving the person who, whose image is made in the image of God, right? Okay? Loving the person, not necessarily their behaviors. And that's totally acceptable. That's how you're actually supposed to love. The world's trying to define love into this behavior focus, and that is, it, it won't work out. And here's, here's how we know. Okay? All right. <clears throat> how many of you think it would be okay to love your wife and you know what? Love other women too. Okay? Don't raise your hand if you're actually thinking that because this sermon will take on a whole new thing. But I'm just saying, yeah, when you choose men or women to love your wife or your husband, that means you're going to exclude, or you should, others to be loved in that way. Am I correct? Yep. All right. Uh, if you love your children, that means you have to give priority to your children. That means that you won't be able to love other things or other people as much, right? I just don't have the time. i got to focus on them. It's not that I don't love them or anything like that. Again, it's, we're not behavior-focused, but love by definition of exclusive. You cannot love the Lord your God and love the world. It actually says that. So who's excluded? Well, if you're loving the world, God's excluded. If you love God, the world's excluded. We all get that. The world is trying to make that go away. Oh, just love everybody. Well, they love everybody until they disagree with you. That's what the cancel culture is. And if we start practicing that, we're, it's really deadly, by the way. <laughs> and, and you violated your own rule. Therefore, you don't know what love is. You got all kinds of philosophical breakdowns. Anyway, love, by definition, is exclusive. If you want to love Jesus, holiness is an attribute of Jesus you have to love. And we are trying so hard to forget that. We don't like it. I actually just had a, 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 a retired cop. We were having, and he goes, well, the gospel's man is about Jesus' love, not his judgment. <laughs> well, let me say this a different way. The gospel's actually about Jesus' love and his perfect justice being carried out. It's really interesting. In fact, forgiveness, by the way, the one up top, is the way he does it. Because if he doesn't, if you don't have forgiveness, guess what? His perfect justice, his perfect holiness is, yeah, we're all done. Like, just go ahead and go for hiking on Sundays because this is a waste of your time. Once forgiveness enters in, it's amazing what it will do. This is the problem with the woke crowd that we see. It's not, I mean, guys, 
if you, I, I'm actually about to write an article on postmodernism, the Black Lives Matter movement, the social justice movement, all this, they actually come from really good meaning. They actually are asking the right questions. As Christians, we would actually agree with them on some of the things. They're like, hey, modernism isn't bringing what we need. In, but instead of going back to their Christian roots, they're creating a new thing, and it's coming out of a postmodern root. We don't have time to talk about that. But the reality is, is they're legitimately asking real questions. They're like, this is not right. Don't poo-poo the whole idea. Understand where they come from. Now, the answer that they're arriving or coming to is wrong, but this is the whole problem. The, the problem that they forget that they can't see is forgiveness. That's the ultimate. That's the difference. I can hang out with people I don't agree with because I can just forgive them. If their behavior especially tramples mine, I'm like, okay, I forgive them. God did. He forgave me, and believe me, we were not seeing eye to eye. All right? Love is by definition exclusive. That's why forgiveness comes in, because then he allows you to enter into the exclusion. He allows you to love God because you're now, you're now redeemed. This is the idea. Right? All right? And the last one is eternal reality is the truth. Any other version is a lie. It's just not the truth. Physical only reality Physical only reality, P-O-R, poor view of the world is a lie. If you try to live your life in a physical only reality, you will fail. If you constantly believe the grass is greener on the other side, you will quickly figure out that the fields, the grass is dead in all the fields. That is the truth. Do not let the world trick you into that lie. So I want to tell a little story, and I was trying to figure out how to tie this up and conclude it with the Good Samaritan. And what I decided to do is I wanted to tell a powerful story. Actually, this week, um, uh, so I work with first responders. I work with an organization called The Navigators. We're a very old and large organization that started out reaching the military in the 1930s. And uh, now, and, uh, so just recently, and we, we have a mission all over the world. We have missionaries all over the world. We reach college students, too, and all this, too. But I, I work under the military mission, under the kind of the original mission of the Navigators. And we just recently gathered all the leaders for a meeting. That's where I was this week. And we rotate our bosses out every about six years. So the military director is who I work for. And our current military director, I've worked under three military directors, and this is the coolest military director I've ever worked under. He used to be the commander, the captain of the USS Alabama submarine. Nuclear submarine, okay? I mean, I'm already like, this is going to be cool. So anyway, we all had a meeting in um, Colorado this week, and we're talking about some phys- uh, ministry philosophy stuff. And, and uh, one night, we're, having a, we're just sharing some stories and, you know, how you came to Christ. And, and what was really cool was to listen to Captain Wickert is his name, Terry Wickert. Captain Wickert was explaining stories of how even as an exo, how he led Bible studies and was leading people to Jesus. And I mean, just stuff I wish that all of our cops would get, our firefighters and you guys. I mean, where you're just doing the work of Jesus right there where you work. And he's telling a story, but he tells us one powerful story. And what I love about this story is that it incorporates all of these aspects. And so I'm going to tell you this story that he just told us this week. And, uh, and here's what I want to tell people. Sometimes we lose sight of the, of the spiritual reality because we fail to write down when our physical reality, our world, gets invaded by the spiritual reality. Okay? It's really simple. We just fail to write down when God does something amazing. Normally this happens when you bring a prayer that's amazing or big or huge and then God answers it. 
all right? And uh, Mike sitting right here, Mike and I, we've shared stories. Mike's seen God work. You just pray, you watch God work, and boom, the spiritual reality invades the physical and does something amazing, and that's what it's really about. And I challenge people, because I used to, I'll get in these funks, I'm like, God, are you there? Man, alive, this is crazy. What's going on in our world? And I even have in a journal I keep with me all the time, in the very front of every journal I keep now, I write down everything to remember when my, when my physical reality was evaded by the spiritual reality. Every single amazing prayer. It's, it's literally four pages of just little notes to remind me, and I'll just, in my prayer day, I just open it and go, boom, boom, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember when he did that, boom. And here's one, so here's one that was shared this week, and I wrote it down as soon as I heard it. So he was the captain of the USS Alabama. He goes out, um, and what he would do when he was the captain, he has, a, has about 150 sailors under his command, and he would pray every day. Every day he would get up, first thing he would do is say, Lord, I want all 150 men to return home and not die. That's his prayer. And he would pray this. They would do six-month rotations, and so every time for six months, every morning he'd get up and pray this, every day. One day they'd go to port, um, and, uh, and they happen to go to port back in their home base, and so uh, he decides to give them leave. He gives all the sailors leave so they can rotate out and go home and see everybody real quick. It's a quick port. They have to fix something on the submarine. And, uh, and so a natural question I asked is, it's a nuclear sub. Tell me what you were fixing. Like, I just want to know. I mean, was it, was it the nuclear reactor? He's like, no, no, it was like a propeller. Okay, so I asked that question just in case you were asking. All right, so he's telling the story, and then he goes, so I pray this prayer every day. One day he was up, he's reading with the, actually the commander of the squadron, and he's in the stateroom with the commander, and the commander gets a phone call, and he takes the phone call, and the commander goes, yeah, he's right, actually right here. And he goes, yeah, I'll tell him. And he hangs up, and he says, Captain Wickert, I need you to go. One of your men was in a car crash and died during, your, during his leave. I need you to go take care of that. Captain Wickert is, has to leave, the, he's at base, so he's heading to a submarine, and he is mad at God. God, I prayed every day that every single one of my sailors would make it home alive. What was worse is this particular sailor he had found out was starting to get into an Old Testament-only kind of messianic view that Jesus wasn't the real Jesus, that the Old Testament Jews were still waiting on the Messiah, and he was falling into this, and it was really a cult because it had some weird deviations, but it was a cult. So he was becoming this Old Testament messianic thing. And so he died in this cult. And so Terry's just wrestling this through. Well, one of the things you have to do if you're the commander of a unit is you gather the chaplain, which is a duty I had done before a chaplain, and you go, and the commander and the chaplain go to the widow's house, and they have to tell them that that person's died. I've done many death notifications. I hate it. It's the worst thing I had to do. Uh, I had to do two uh, deaths of children. Worst, worst thing to go and tell a mom that their child has died. I mean, the, the response on them is beyond anything that anyone should live through. So he has to go tell, and he goes up to the widow's house, and she can just tell, like, in, when you're in the Navy, if you see the chaplain and the captain of your, of your husband's uh, uh, command coming up, it's not good. And she comes out, and she's got that face, and Terry says, I need to tell you, your husband died. And she comes and she just starts beating on his chest. And she goes, how could you let him die? And he just said, he just stood there and he just let her beat. So he says, you know, he heads back to the submarine. The chaplain does his job. He heads back to the submarine and he decides, hey, we're here long enough. I want to do a memorial. And so he's preparing for the memorial. The memorial is two days later. And so 
He's in a stateroom and he decides he's going to deliver the message because he is the ambassador of Jesus, but he still is like, God, what's going on? And about that time, an ensign calls and said, uh, Captain Wickert, sir, there's a gentleman here named Mr. Smith and he wants to see you. He says, this is not the time. You need to tell Mr. Smith to walk away. And so uh, the ensign says, yes, sir. And, and he keeps working and then the phone rings again. Now, if you've got to call a captain twice, it's not a good thing. So the ensign's like, uh, sir, uh, please, this guy is begging to see you. I'm sorry, sir. He's like, well, okay, I'll come see him. So he leaves the stateroom, walks off the submarine, walks over to where the visitor is, and he goes, Mr. Smith, I'm Captain Wicker. He goes, Captain Wicker, I've been told i got to tell you something, and i got to tell it to you. He says, I was driving the other way on the highway, and I saw the crash happen that killed your sailor. And I immediately pulled over, and I ran over to see if I could help, and I could tell he was in bad shape. I could tell he had some severe eternal trauma. So I grabbed him, and and I said, sir, and he said his eyes were closed. He says, sir, sir, if you can hear me, I want you to squeeze my hand. And this sailor squeezed his hand. And he says, hey, I don't know if we've got much time, but I've got to tell you something. Jesus loves you. And if you want to accept Jesus right now, I want you to squeeze my hand. And he says, he squeezed my hand. So here Mr. Smith is talking to Captain Wickard. <laughs> Captain Wickard, right then the Holy Spirit says, I answered your prayer. It's not the way you wanted me to, but I answered your prayer. It turns out this guy was a, a minister with Jews for Jesus, the organization for Jews for Jesus. So God sent the right man at the right time to answer Terry's prayer. And so Terry was able to go home, or go back to his stateroom and write his message. And he came and he gave the message. And the widow comes up and she goes, I had been praying that he would receive Jesus. He was following this weird cult. And I am so glad to hear he's following Jesus. You see, when the spiritual realm invades your physical realm, you need to write it down so you're always living in the right reality. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much. We have the opportunity to see you, to experience the spiritual reality. May we become more aware. May our desire come that we want to be holy and separated to see you work in our lives so that we can go and invade the rest of this world so they too can see the light, the truth, the word, the holy, personal, loving God. Lord, I thank you so much for using us and letting us see you. In Jesus' name, amen.